Hello, this is Jen Rubin of the Washington Post. I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room. We're going to have a series of fun guests. We're going to chew the fat and we're going to dish the dirt and we're going to bring you the best and the smartest people I can find. Make sure you tell your friends. Join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dahlia and I are co-hosting in for the fabulous Mary Trump, and we happen to even have one guest so far. You may recognize him. He's a little reticent. We'll see if we can bring him out uh, today on the podcast. Hi, Brian. Hi, Jen. Hi. I think we have. I think we have (laughs) Jen um, Rubin waiting in the wings, but. Uh, we could probably start. There's been uh, quite a good amount of legal news this week, my friends. You know how much I love legal news. Uh, I mean, only moments ago, the former president defamed Eugene Carroll again on Truth Social using the same words he used the first couple of times. Um, and her lawyer, Robbie Kaplan. <laughs> Back in court, uh, amending the complaint. Uh, Jen Taub, you want to walk us through what the hell? I am utterly shocked because I know Donald Trump has no self-control. However, you would think that at the very moment a federal judge is considering a motion made by someone, E. Jean Carroll, uh, to amend a com- the original complaint that we call Carol One to add the defamation from the about was it almost two weeks ago CNN town hall that this and on the basis of the fact that because he already lost a case his continuing to use the same language indicates kind of a um, malicious intent that would affect the question of whether when he was president he was acting personally or within the scope of his employment you would think this would be the time to shut the f I mean, shut the fuck up. But no, this is the time when he hurts his chances again. And maybe it's just writing a checkout. But it seems to me he's going to have to sell some stuff because that guy has always been in debt up to his eyeballs and, and or up to his toupee. So I guess he just, this man, which is not surprising, cares much more about being insulted, his ego, and being able to maintain his Teflon status as a liar who will never be held accountable, that he keeps just sinking deeper and deeper or shoveling himself deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know what the thing is? You know, if Robbie Kaplan filing a complaint against him gives him another shovel, so be it. That's what yeah. I have to say. Oh, you, you got to remember, Jen, that you use words you would think and Donald Trump never has. So there, there you go. He's, he's going to keep going no matter what, having covered that guy for four years, it's not. I, look, I was on uh, News Nation with Chris uh, Cuomo the night that the, the decision came down. And I said then, I, and, and I wasn't the only one who said, look, what he said today in court is going to lead to her either filing or amending the case because he defamed her once again. So he's going to keep it up. And yes, you're right. He is going to sell stuff to try and uh, pay his bills. I've gotten three emails from him this morning trying to send hats, <laughs> shirts, and and shot glasses that say "Make America Great Again." So wait, don't you know what they should say? Which would be pretty funny because then she, well, it should say she's a liar. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. But then that would just be that would be on brand for on him. Brand. Yes, yeah. maybe a, maybe mailing can... list is seriously off kilter if Brian is getting their emails. Well, you know what happened there, Jen is. Here's here's a story that's not told often, but when Donald Trump left the White House, he took with him every email of every reporter that covers the White House so and sold it, I'm pretty sure sold it, to all the other Republicans in his MAGA sphere of influence. And we get, I've tried to get off his email list three times and it keeps coming through. Now I just erase it and, 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 you know, cut and paste it and laugh. But that was, that's Donald Trump Grifton stealing even the emails out of the White House when he left. 
can we can we pause for one second because i think maybe some listeners can't you know they're throwing around words like you know itch, issue preclusion and collateral estoppel yeah. like can somebody just walk us through like we're seven maybe, maybe one of the gens um why it is that donald trump does not to be have to be sued again that robbie doesn't have to start a new trial and use this defamation in a whole new action that she can just go back and essentially paste it back onto carol one this issue has been litigated and decided can you guys just walk us through that because i think that we're in this rare moment where having complained on this show that the law is too slow the law does not actually have to be slow this time around Right. I'm going to start, well, do you mind, Jen, and then have you jump in, because I'm going to do the civil procedure professor piece, and then you're going to do the human piece, but I promise to do it in clear language. So as you all know, E. Jean Carroll is a friend, and I became friends with her in 2021, but she is also the gift that keeps on giving for a civil procedure professor. And let me tell you what civil procedure is for those of you who have not suffered through law school. It's a course you take in your first year of law school that teaches you actually how federal cases move through the courts. And there are these special rules called the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which are uh, made by sort of a group of lawyers, but get blessed by Congress. It, and, and so the key thing here that Dahlia is talking about is that the case that E. Jean just won nearly two weeks ago in court, the jury verdict, um, unanimous jury verdict, both that Donald Trump had committed sexual battery and that he had defamed her in a true social post from um, October of 2022. That case we often refer to as Carol II because it was the second case she filed. But the, the reason why that case happened so quickly, that case was filed in November of 2022, and a jury verdict was returned, finding Trump liable, as I mentioned, um, in May. That is very fast. But the reason why it was fast is because a previous case called Carol One had been filed in 2019. And all the stuff that we have talked about before or that you hear about on the news about discovery taking a long time and all these sort of machinations to, you know, throw sand in the in the gears that Trump did with that case, he had reached the end of the road. And then stupidly, um, on October 12, 2022, said the same def defamatory stuff that e claiming E.G. Carroll was lying and making up with the story about the sexual assault for money. Because he did that, that had allowed Robbie Kaplan to file Carroll 2 in November. Okay, now, so what is Carroll 1? Because this is what Dahlia is talking about. Carroll 1 was the pure defamation case. It was not a sexual assault claim. The pure defamation case that... Eugene Carroll had initially filed in um, November of 2019 in state court um, under New York state law. Um, and that had been moving around in state court in delays and delays and delays and Donald Trump not wanting to give discovery or blah, 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 the delays. And then filed in 2019, um, toward the end of uh, 2020, Bill Barr, um, or whoever was the next attorney general by that point, um, decided that, huh, why is this case in state court against um, a sitting president? Um, if he made these defamatory statements in uh, 2019, in the summer of 2019 against E.J. Carroll when he was president, isn't there an argument under the statute called the Westfall Act that she is suing someone in the executive branch who was acting within the scope of their employment, so to speak. Um, so shouldn't that actually be a case under the Westfall Act, which has exclusive jurisdiction in federal court? And also, shouldn't the DOJ come in and represent them? I know I'm going on for a long time, Dahlia, but I'm going to get there. So then uh, Bill Barr, the DOJ, did this thing called removal, civil procedure professor lesson here. Removal means where you walk into federal court and saying, I'm removing this case to federal court because it really should be in federal court. So then the case goes into federal court and lands in the best judge in the world, uh, Judge Kaplan's courtroom. And Judge Kaplan at that point only has, has this Carol One case. And then after it gets moved there, as part of this, Bill Barr, the DOJ, said, well, we are the proper defendant and we are going to file to have this case um, thrown out. Um, because under this Westfall Act, which is supposed to give people like you and me the ability, it's supposed to cut through this kind of immunity 
from from being sued. It allows you to sue a civil servant or a political figure in the executive branch. And normally speaking, you can then get the government to defend them and pay you if you win. But when it comes to things like defamation, if it's if a executive branch official defames somebody while they're in acting within the scope of their employment, the case will be completely dismissed. So that was the goal. The goal was to get the case thrown out. And that question, though, of whether Trump was actually acting within the scope of his employment or was saying lies about E. Jean Carroll because of personal vendetta or personal lies, um, then if it's personal, the case wouldn't be thrown out and DOJ would have to go away. If it was actually a presidential action, then the case was going to be dismissed. That one question kept going through the courts, bounced up to, you know, Judge Cap, Lewis Kaplan said, duh, this was personal. He was overturned by the Second Circuit um, in part, but then they sent over just one of the questions to the D.C. Court of Appeals because this defamation supposedly happened in D.C., and they asked the highest court in D.C. to decide as a legal matter whether uh, saying lies about a woman that you raped was a presidential duty. They punted it back, and it ended up back in Judge Kaplan's cat courtroom. But it landed there, you guys, right before the trial. These cases are supposed to be consolidated. So now we have what, what Dahlia is talking about, which is this E. Jean Carroll 1 trial. And just last night, Robbie Kaplan filed a motion to ask Judge Kaplan, no relation, to amend the Carroll 1 complaint, the one filed from 2019, about defamation when he was president, she wants to add a claim, which is, and by the way, he additionally defamed her at the CNN town hall. And it's relevant to this case because it goes to that very legal question of was it personal or was it um, his executive employment? Okay, I'm going to let I'm going to let Jen Rubin talk about collateral estoppel issue preclusion because I feel like I've done enough damage now. Can I just boo every time somebody says Bill Barr or take a drink? Either one. I'll be happy to sit through it as long as I can drink and boo Bill Barr. You can drink. I'm drinking um, Diet Cherry Coke. It's so good. And Jen Rubin, by the way, isn't just brilliant. She also went to law school. So she knows about issue preclusion. Let me pick up on a couple points Jen made, and then we'll get to the estoppel issue, I promise. Um, First of all, the position that Donald Trump was acting within the scope of his employment was a position that Bill Barr took. When Merrick Garland became attorney general, he chose to adopt that as his own position. He was not forced to do so. He could have. But I think out of this misguided sense that he wanted to keep the Justice Department apolitical, as if Bill Barr hadn't politicized it in the other direction. He simply said, yes, that's right. We're not going to reverse that. By the way, that then set up a very interesting issue in the January 6th related cases, because there there were questions in the civil suit brought by members of Congress and members of the police force as to whether Trump's actions and his speech on the mall that day were also within the scope of his employment. Trump so far has lost on that issue, but it just shows you how Merrick Garland got himself into hot water by simply assuming that everything Trump said or did was covered uh, in his employment. Second thing, um, this is the latest defamation, um, not only goes to this issue of whether it's inside or outside the scope of his duty, but it also goes to the issue of malicious intent and punitive damages because He's unstoppable. He keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. Um, and that's important for a couple of reasons. One, it can increase the damage award that um, she could possibly get. And secondly, it hangs out there as sort of a constant source of reminder and liability that every time he opens his mouth, it's going to cost him money and slap him down. That may not stop him because, of no, course, because he has no money. <laughs> and because he has no money and because he, he has no impulse control. But nevertheless, it is 
rewarding, satisfying to know that there are consequences to what he is doing. And he can't simply keep repeating what he has been doing all along. But if he doesn't, if nothing really happens to the guy and, and he just keeps going, are there in fact consequences? That's, I mean, it's satisfying to see there's consequences in court. I would like to see real life consequences for Donald Trump. Just well, short of sewing his mouth shut, but yeah. you know, please. the good news is he doesn't keep his mouth shut about anything. So no. in that same town hall, he provided Jack Smith, the special counsel, with a boatload of fun admissions <laughs> that, of course, he knew what he was taking, and those are his documents. This is the kind of evidence you like never ever get in a case of this nature. It reminds me of the Fox litigation, where you never ever get evidence that behind the scenes, the reporters are saying, we don't believe this crap. And then they get on the air and they say this crap. Those so, aren't reporters. Those were hosts. Those were hosts. Um, and the, yes. the reporters were the ones that actually at Fox that I feel for. You know, so, they're the people who cover the White House, and I won't mention all of their names, but they were vilified and they tried to... Uh, Jackie Hendricks, they tried to they tried to get her fired because she fact-checked Donald Trump in real time. Right. So the reporters there I have respect for, but in separating the two, Jen, it, it's real important to note that these are uh, entertainment hosts and Sean Hannity and uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, by no stretch of any imagination, are to be considered journalists or reporters. Flax, PR hacks, and uh, I'd say some, yeah, I'll say it, shitbags. But, you know, that's just me. Maybe one other one other thing that that we're leaving on the table a little bit, but it's worth uh, I think it's at the heart of what you're talking about, Jen Rubin, is that when we say there are no consequences leveled uh, and that entirely turns on whether Donald Trump is going to pay these money damages and the future money damages and all the future defamations. But I think it's worth remembering, at least as actual journalists, um, that what does linger and what does hold lasting consequences mm. is that he has been found for the first time liable for defamation and that that is under the standard that is the highest legal standard in the world, right? The Sullivan standard. Right. Donald Trump is an adjudicated liar <laughs> and it leads us a little bit to, <laughs> to our next topic, which wait, is- Wait, 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 don't go, don't go off this yet, but you said adjudicated liar and I, and I love what you wrote about this on slate, but he also ironically wanted to open up the libel laws. I mean, yes. the, yeah, this is the Sullivan right, that he wants. He wanted to by fiat reverse. You remember at the beginning of his presidency, but I, I think that um, it's really useful in terms of thinking about how we cover Donald Trump going forward. That Donald Trump, comma adjudicated serial liar, is part of the framing. <laughs> yes. Because the next topic we had for you all was the rogues gallery of people. Wait. Go ahead. Sorry. Who are coming after Trump, who but think that, that that they can somehow win in the primaries. Well, and the fact that every single one of them doesn't announce their candidacy with a T-shirt that says, my opponent is an adjudicated serial liar, um, is really interesting. I mean, it goes to this kind of through line here, which are, if, if there are no consequences for Trump, it's beyond the money consequences. It's that we have chosen not to hold him to a judicial consequence, which he is now very much the product of. Yeah. Wait, you know, wait, wait, wait a second. But Brian, um, I know Brian wants to talk about the primaries and Dahlia is trying to move us along, but Jen Rubin didn't mention what issue preclusion was because this is, I think people, because she had other much important, more important things to say, but the, the thing that's key here is you don't need to have another trial with all these witnesses um, that need to uh, prove up uh, to a jury that not only was Eugene Carroll sexually assaulted by him, but that he lied about it. The, the key thing is one of the issues in, in Carol 1 is going to be, is it defamation? And that's been established by a jury already in Judge Kaplan's court who has this case. What we're talking about now is it's coming down to two things. One, was he acting in his as, as a private person? And two, how big is the check going to be this time? Right. And it bounce, whatever it is. Hey, it's Jen Taub. I am going to let you in on a little secret. I've always said that sleeping is my superpower. It really is critical 
for happiness and productivity. And it's really funny. I can't tell you how many times people will say to me, how can you get so much done? You must never sleep. It's kind of a throwaway line, like you probably don't sleep. And, And that's the furthest thing from the truth. I literally laugh out loud. And, you know, if it's on social, I write LOL because the only way that I get stuff done is because I get a good night's sleep. And I truly know the difference. If I've had a restless night or it's too hot or it's too cold or what have you, or I'm out too late, my day is shot. And that's why I want to tell you about how you too can get more done Um, be happier, get along better with your family and colleagues through a good night's sleep. And Miracle Made Sheets are a key way that you can tap in to this superpower. They have kind of this this process where these sheets have self-cooling qualities. So they're, you're, you don't get too hot, you don't get too cold when you're sleeping. What they say is that you can improve your deep sleep quality by over 20%. And, you know, I don't know the exact percentages myself. I haven't done the studies, but I do know how important it is to get that good night's sleep. And why not try? If you're not getting it, why not try everything? In these miracle sheets, they're incredibly comfortable They're not super expensive like other luxury brands. They use this kind of, um, it's hard to describe it, it's silver infused fabrics. This is material originally developed by NASA. This means that Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulated and they keep you at your ideal temperature so that you can relax, sink in to that really important deep sleep. With Miracle, you'll get better sleep every night. Just imagine how great it would feel to really feel rested after a night's sleep and ready to start your day full of energy, full of focus to get the stuff done that you plan to do. Um, there's there's this other aspect um, about them, which I, who um, am often too busy to like keep on a regular schedule with all the laundry, these sheets have self-cleaning qualities. This silver that's embedded in the fabric um, is there to pre- prevent bacterial growth. What they, the, the folks over at Miracle Sheets say is that 99.7% of bacterial growth can be prevented. So they're going to stay fresher and cleaner much longer than other sheets. Um, I don't want to sleep on bacteria and I also don't want to have to wash my sheets every day. Um, so, um, and you know, I want things to be comfortable and fresh. And that's what's really great. Um, it can help not just with your sleep, but also, you know, if you were supposed to wash your sheets this week and missed a few, you know, a few days late, no problem. Um, so I'm encouraging you to go try miracle.com slash Mary. Go there to try these Miracle Made Sheets today. Uh, Mother's and Father's Day are right around the corner. This might be a great time um, to buy these for your parents or to encourage your kids um, to buy them for you or just treat yourself if you are a mother or father. It's hard enough to balance that with your regular schedule. Give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sheets and that someone, you know, should also be you. You can save over 40% with our promo code, Mary. Use that at checkout. And uh, you can save even more by getting three free towels, which I totally need. Uh, I'm very excited about this. Uh, Miracle is so confident in their product uh, that they're backing it with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you are not 100% satisfied, you can get a full refund. So this is the time to do it. Unleash your superpower of sleep. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go try miracle.com slash Mary and use the code Mary to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% on the sheets. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash Mary to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. You can also find the link in the show notes. 
Well, there's this principle in the law that once you have a decision and a jury verdict is a decision, that you can use that in other contexts. That's a matter of law now. It's a fact um, that he cannot avoid. So when you talk about issue preclusion or you talk about estoppel, that essentially means that when you're talking about E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump, you don't get to relitigate whether she was sexually assaulted. You don't get to relitigate whether um, he lied. You do not get to relitigate actual malice. Those things are a given. So what you're doing is kind of filling in whatever additional facts are specific to that lawsuit. So in Carol one, it would be the specific words that Donald Trump said when he was in office. Um, and it would be the damages that flow from that to Jean Carroll, aggravated by the punitive damages that might be proven by his appearance on CNN. And it's an interesting thing that in Carol too, one of the arguments that Trump's lawyers made, which was not insane, um, was that the damages really didn't flow from his comments after the presidency. They flowed from Carol one, from his statements during the presidency. And that was a separate case and couldn't prove it. Well, looky here, we're back to Carol one. So if the argument is that really all the damage, the, the destruction of her reputation really flowed from that, well, then this case is worth more than Carol too. Well, John, uh, I just want you to, I just want to note that I love the saying that Donald Trump's lawyer said something that wasn't completely insane. Gonna, it happens. You know, like Monkey said a typewriter. Trouble. Yeah, Monkey said a typewriter. Eventually they come out with, you know, Shakespeare. Um, so I, I think the other thing to keep in mind as we're beginning to accumulate these cases, and to Brian's point, I think we're getting towards the primaries, is that it matters to some people, but it doesn't matter to Republican primary voters, well, who, as Sarah Longwell has said, are in essentially an abusive relationship with Trump. He can do anything, <laughs> say anything, um, and they just kind of cringe and say fine, or they that's baked into what they think about him. So although I would love the T-shirts to emerge when you get these new candidates, I have a feeling their audience, which right now is just the primary voters, would say, we don't care. Um, or would say, oh, that elect, that uh, trial was rigged. So it doesn't carry a lot of weight with Republican primary voters, which explains one of his one of the problems the Republican Party has, which is what are they going to use to get rid of this guy unless they want to go into 2024 with a guy who's been indicted multiple times, has been determined to be a sexual abuser and a liar. Um, really, how are they going to get out of this? So. I think the ongoing presence of these uh, lawsuits, criminal cases, matters a lot, but it doesn't matter everywhere. It doesn't have consequences within the Republican Party, which is now a cult. It, it kind of does, though. It, it, the accumulated, um, that's why you're seeing people line up to run against Donald Trump. The accumulated effect of all of this is uh, eventually they're betting will force him out of the race. And so there is a there is a direct um, cause and effect here based on the uh, uh, Carroll case and the other charges that he's facing, particularly if he's indicted. These people are all betting. It's Ron DeSantis, and I've talked with all of these uh, people running. Sc Scott wants to be introduced to the American public for 2028. Uh, you understand Nikki Haley is running for vice president. DeSantis is this is his only real chance because what will ha he can take the Trump voters he thinks when Trump leaves and he will not have a Republican Party in 1928 that or in 2028 that he would be able to play to because it will shift dramatically the shift has occurred in the Republican Party you can see that by the people that are lining up to run against him they will not come out against him right now because he still has the money and the influence but should Donald Trump leave? And that's the bet that these people are making right now. Because look at it. 
Jen, it, if to your point, Donald Trump still has all the money and all the people in his corner. If he stays in the race, the more divided the Republican Party is, his 30% gives him the strength to be the, the, the incumbent and the Republican nominee in 2024. What everyone is betting, a, a betting is against him being in in 2024. And so Tim Scott and Nikki Haley trying to get themselves noticed and maybe perhaps, you know, nominated. But the thing I really point to, the thing that you, I've said it before, and I, you know, just reading the tea leaves of this, what the Republican Party is setting itself up for is when, if Donald Trump leaves this uh, contingent of, of primary wannabes and he's out of the race, this leaves the race actually not wide open for Ron DeSantis. It actually leaves it wide open for, uh, and, and I know Jen Tobby, every time I say these names together, you think of some, but Cheney and Kinzinger. <laughs> and, and, that's, and either one of them could not win a Republican. I know you're shaking your head. They can't win a Republican primary right now, but she votes with Donald Trump 93% of the time, and she is more popular than anyone else in the Republican Party, and she could make a case uh, easier than Ron DeSantis. With Donald Trump out of the race, and you take him out for a minute, what do you got left? You've got a lot of little hitters that can't win. Ron DeSantis has all the appeal of roadkill. Scott is not well-known and can't win in a Republican Party. Nikki Haley can't. These are people that are just not going to be able to do the job. She could step in as a savior for the Rep that's the role that she could play. She unfortunately, is hated in the Republican Party. She is She's not very popular. Hated. She is hated. Whoa, 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 Brian, Brian. Wait a minute. Wait. I talked to the members. She's the not member She's Brian. upon because of what she did to Trump. But if Trump's gone, then that changes the the. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. She betrayed the party by helping out Nancy Pelosi. She ruined their narrative that this was a rigged election. She will never be forgiven for that. It has nothing to do whether it Donald Trump comes or stays. It has to do whether she betrayed the party and had the nerve to speak truth when the rest of them were busy lying. She will never be forgiven for that because that makes them all look like ridiculous liars and scoundrels, which they we'll are. Of course. So it will make, I think, um, and by the way, it's an interesting point that while all these people piling into the race think he's going to leave None of the voters do yet. So it's news to them that Donald Trump is supposed to get out. And because of that, his poll numbers are going to stay high and it's going to be very hard to get him out. Yeah. Oh, and and nobody that. who's coming for him is really coming for him. Exactly. Nobody who has announced, including DeSantis, has really made an even infinitesimal effort to stand up for him to him and i wonder if the way to connect what jen rubin said and what brian said is that if you read the experts on authoritarianism and tyranny right if you read them what they all say is that what donald trump is performing is mastery of truth right don't don't believe your eyes don't believe the january 6th commission don't believe what jack smith is pulling together don't believe what the robbie kaplan jurors uh determined in manhattan believe what donald trump Trump tells you. And that's why, in some sense, he continues the defamation, because what he is performing is the utter irrelevance of truth. The truth is what he says it is. And it's really hard for the people who are coming after him, maybe with the exception of Liz Cheney, who I think believes in some version of truth. But they can't say he's a lying liar because the lying has become the coin of the realm. And the lying has been adopted by the entire party. If he is lying, then Kevin McCarthy is lying. Then they're all lying. Then everyone but the seven Republicans who voted to acquit him the second time is a liar. But of course they are. And I think that goes to the fundamental problem with the Republican Party. It's not Donald Trump. It is the authoritarian mentality that he has cultivated the Frankenstein monster is now, you know, coming after the politicians. The reason why none of these little people are getting any kind of traction is because they're way too normal. No one wants an Asa Hutchinson. No one's interested if he should get in and a Chris Christie. That's so 2000. You know, they've moved beyond normal. Um, and 
the level of gamesmanship and really ridiculous performance behavior that the base demands now kind of excludes anybody who would be viable in a general election. Well, problems on them. Too bad. Um, and until they start losing those general elections repeatedly by large amounts, this is going to be the reality for the Republican Party. Brian, you got something else? Well, just that politics is filled with lies and always has been. So Donald Trump didn't cultivate. I don't know that Donald Trump cultivated so much as took advantage of it and found a very willing uh, Republican Party that's all about winning. This is a minority party. Face it. The Republican Party is a minority party, not a minority of, uh, you know, like like not not minority socially, but minority smaller than than a majority. And they are a failing party. So what you're seeing out of the Republican Party, what you're seeing out of Donald Trump will continue after Donald Trump, whether or not it will be more effective is the question. And whether or not Donald Trump is will or won't be in the race, I still think is to be determined. And look. I've, I confess, I've only covered, I've only been covering poli uh, po political and presidential races since Reagan. So I'm, I'm a little, I haven't covered all of them. So I'm a little slack on that. But I can tell you, whatever we're predicting today, something will happen in the next few months to completely change everything. We're still about a year away from the, from the time that matters, and anything can happen in that time period. And I think you just have to read the tea leaves and watch because the Republican Party, I think, will blow up before this. I, I still don't think Donald Trump will be on the ballot in November of 2024. And I think what's scary and I think everyone's being held hostage by him, Republicans and Democrats. It's what it, right now he's still taking all the damn oxygen in the room and scaring the crap out of people on the right and the left. The right won't react to him. The left is set. Uh, the, the Democratic Party is set on, on making sure that the incumbent becomes the next president. There is no discussion otherwise. And it's going to be very frightening for the next or at least, you know, exciting if you like this shit for the next year. You know, I want to follow up with what you said, Brian, and, and ask everybody. You just said something um, surprising to me. You said Donald Trump, you don't think, will be on the ballot in November of 2024. And a lot can happen between now and then. But I'm curious whether that's going to be a voluntary thing or the party is going to have to kick him off or he's going to get kicked off the ballot because of the 14, you know, section uh which is the section now, 14.3, section, um, is it for three, section three of the 14th Amendment about insurrection? Like what, what is the catalyst or for, because I imagine while he's still above ground, he will be on that ballot. I think he's already set himself up to leave. He's told us numerous times that he can run for president, but if a doctor comes out and tells him that uh, he's not healthy, he'd have to back out. He said that on more than one occasion. I think he's setting himself up as a backdoor to leave. I think the pressure to him, I think he's going to be so involved and so debt ridden and so screwed. And with the, the you know, seven, uh, well, they used to call them <clears throat> when they were the Democrats, you know, the, the dwarves. Well, as the dwarves, as the Republican dwarves come after him, I think eventually it's going to uh, bring about his downfall. But that's, I, I could be wrong. Hell, I, I mean, God knows you don't know, really, we don't really know what's going to happen yet. Donald Trump, realistically, not realistically, has always thought that him being president, him running for president, was some kind of magic legal shield for him. It's not, as he's discovering in the Bragg case, and it won't be when Jack Smith is around. But his desire to get back into the presidency because he thinks he can pardon himself because he's going to get revenge on his enemies is so overwhelmingly powerful. Unless he's dead, he's going to be running for president. Now, Republicans might actually reject him at some point. They might say, yeah, maybe we don't want the guy who violated the Espionage Act, you know, to be our candidate. Um, and maybe the down ticket Republicans will say, uh, problem here. Um, I don't think I can win if the guy who instituted a coup is at the top of the ticket. 
that may eventually happen, but it's not going to be voluntary. He's going to stick in there. And by the way, he these cases take a long time to get to trial. So it's not like you're going to have a verdict in these cases. Correct. He's going to be looking at the presidency as a way to stop these trials in their tracks because we have that ridiculous OLC opinion that says you can't prosecute a sitting president. So the trial could be put off for another four years as far as he's concerned. That's the bonanza for him. He can't not stop running because he needs that so badly, whether intellectually, not intellectually, mentally, emotionally, um, in his absurd view of the law. So he's going to keep on running. And uh, Republicans, hey, you know, that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. You're not wrong. <laughs> do we want to turn to the imminent impending default <laughs> do we want to turn to uh whatever i mean we just had a conversation in which we agreed that it was entirely possible that the nihilists would get their guy running for president are the nihilists also going to bring us into end times what do people think uh i've covered this a little bit let me just kick off with two things that were said and then i'll, I'll back out of it because but here's the thing uh biden came out and said, there's no way we're going to default. That our, our differences should not make a difference in this, that we the United States cannot default on its debt. You had Mitch McConnell, who was came out to the sticks, and he said, now look, Mitch is going to end up brokering this deal. Kevin McCarthy is representing the far right and, and trying to get, so he doesn't get tossed out, because remember, they changed the rules of the House, so only one member of the House can ask for a call to get him removed. So he's got a deal. It's basically he's being held hostage by Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and a few other morons. So he's got to play to them. So everyone knows that. And Biden acknowledged that. But if you want to know where this is going, and, and I did address this in a column last week in, in, in uh, Salon, the, here's where it's going. When Mitch McConnell walked out and said, we're not going to default on our debt. We know it. They know it. End of story. That's what he said, almost word for word. Everything else at this point is political theater. Kevin McCarthy screaming for him to come back, for Biden to come back from the G7. Daddy, come home. I mean, that sounded so desperate in its plea. I can't do anything with the underlings. Daddy, come home and fix this for me. Biden is the deal maker. And by the way, so is the senator from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell. He will broker the deal. There will be some give. There will be some take. Everyone will walk away from it, and it will be solved. Now, we may not like the details because that's where the devil does lie is in the details. But it looks to me like everyone who's screaming that we're going to default has not been listening too carefully to what's actually been going on. And again, my fault there is having covered it, I'm way too close to it. And maybe it looks different from outside. But from inside, it just looks like this is all political theater. It's all staged. And at the end of the day, they're going to make a deal. I think what is going on here is Kevin McCarthy knows the only way this gets done is with all the Democrats and a handful of Republicans. So he is trying to give those handful of Republicans uh, a position for them to say, well, we got something or we got enough and therefore we can go along with it. He's never going to get the vast majority of the members of the House. And it'll be interesting whether he survives this politically, because they may turn around and said, you promised you would never do this. You would never go to Democrats for votes. You would never break the so-called Hastert rule, um, which doesn't have to do with wrestling, but has to do with the um, refusal of the member of the majority party to bring something to the floor that doesn't have the majority support within his own caucus. So I do think, and I didn't feel this way maybe a week ago, that something is going to kind of get done. And there's been a really interesting dynamic that some reporters, my colleague at the Washington Post, Greg Sargent has picked up on, and I've certainly seen the legal argument that the 14th Amendment prevents um, a default um, that Larry Tribe, among others, has explained. 
has reached the president's ears. And he says it now and again, thank goodness. Good for Larry Tribe, good for um, the president for listening to sound legal advice. But for reasons that kind of escape me, the White House staff, the White House communications wants to completely downplay the 14th Amendment. I don't know whether this is because they think they'll never get the Republicans' help if they think Biden can do this on his own. I don't know if they think that makes Democrats more intransigent if they think they can do it on their own. But they are running around flapping their arms, trying to get everyone to hush up about the 14th Amendment. And I just find that kind of bizarre because I think the only way you get even those handful of Republicans to the table is saying, you either are with us and get something or you get nothing. Um, and we're going to get off of this stupid debt ceiling stuff every time around. And we're going to use the full powers of the presidency to do it. So I'm curious, particularly Dahlia and Jen, whether you have a kind of a sense that this strategy of downplaying dumping on the 14th Amendment makes sense or it doesn't make sense? I mean, I, I always chalk this up to just failure to plan. I think that, you know, two weeks ago, it was as though nobody had ever heard of or made the argument that, and by the way, uh, Professor Tribe changed his views on this, right? Yes. So I think that mm. it's it, it feels to me very much of a piece with the filibuster, with court packing, with these conversations that Democrats think to have at like one minute left on the shot clock. And then they say, you know what would have been a really good Overton window conversation to have started five years ago? This one about the 14th Amendment. Too bad we didn't start it until a week ago. It's raging on Twitter and the White House doesn't want to touch it. And so I think this is partly a problem of just systemically one party that is constantly laying down tracks for crazy bonkers shit like the major questions doctrine and setting aside elections result. And by the way, doing it five years in advance so that they've seeded the world with the idea that that is legal. And I think the other party actually has. I mean, it seems to me there is, in fact, a sort of almost mandatory, you know, command under the 14th Amendment. This doesn't seem like it's implausible right. what's being argued. And to be like, oh, I see this shiny object on the ground and I'm picking it up now that it's too late feels very, very on brand for this White House and for the party. I am Okay, go ahead. I'll go after you, Jen. Two quick points. One, that's exactly, Dahlia, while I, why I beg Democrats to now begin the argument about term limits and court expansion, because you're going to need to acclimatize everyone if you're really going to ever get there. So that's number one. And number two, the... Democrats in their kind of, as you put it, like refusal to think ahead, always have in their mind a disconnect from reality. On one hand, they say, yeah, MAGA Republicans are crazy. But on the other hand, they are always assuming there's some sanity on the other side. And they get just enough encouragement, like in the bipartisan infrastructure bill to fuel that belief that when the chips are really down, there'll be some normal Republicans to come to their aid. Um, and this may be, unfortunately, for those of us who want to wake them up and shake them by the shoulders, another instance in which their bias towards normality gets confirmed because Kevin McCarthy probably will find five or whatever members to get this done. And we'll be back to, oh, see, the entire Republican Party isn't mad you know, infested. There are, you know, responsible Republicans, which I think is insane. <laughs> so I am going to, you know, we all, ha we all have our, I hate to say this expression, priors, uh, but you know where I'm going to go with this maybe, which is, I think this is an excellent sheep problem. So there's this book, you all hear about it years ago. It was called Excellent, excellent Sheep, um, about the subtitles, The Miseducation of the American Elite. And I think what this comes down to is that people, um, you know, the, the league, that there is a um, monopoly in the legal academy and then the legal academy whispers or speaks directly to people in the White House. They're 
so-called liberal uh, legal scholars are incredibly conservative when it comes and hierarchical when it comes to interpreting the U.S. Constitution. It's mostly men. It's mostly a certain kind of man. And, you know, I, you know, I adore Larry and I, you know, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm not pointing to any particular person, but there's this way I have a friend who, uh, my friend Zephyr Teachout, when she was first on the teaching market for a professorship, people did not like her theory on corruption because it challenged their theory on the constitution. And there gets to be this way that people who have ideas that might be right there in the plain language or even in the uh, history of the U.S. Constitution get crushed because the people who have the power um, and have made their theories known don't really want an upstart. And so, again, this is a cultural kind of phenomenon, whereas it turns out because a lot of the conservatives are a little bit batshit crazy and because they had to throw spaghetti against the wall because the court has been historically, and I'm putting in quotes, liberal, um, they had to go swing for the fences. And I think there's a difference between coming up with batshit crazy stuff and actually reading what the Constitution says. And And I, it almost makes me want almost to kind of, rage about this stuff because there are a lot of you know this happens from the minute you are whether you're at an elite law school or an ordinary law school it happens from the minute you go in where you're told yeah i see what you're saying but that idea is too cute um it's not going to work um and what they're trying to say is they don't think the current court would buy it but you know and i have specific examples from my own experience but you shouldn't shut down the argument when you say that's too cute in front of the other students or uh, a guy, a conservative um, legal scholar on Twitter, when this 14th Amendment th- thing started to resurface recently, he all he did was retweet the article with an LOL. And that sends a message to serious law students that it's a fucking joke. And it sends a message to people inside the White House who might have law degrees that they don't want to be a fucking joke. And you know what's right. a fucking joke? Letting our democracy go down in flames and our credit rating go down in flames. So fuck all of you. That's my, my <laughs> comment. Sorry, Problem. I have a little rage. That's quite right. One thing about the argument that the White House is advancing. The, my favorite one is this Supreme Court is so nutty that they would rubber stamp a default or put it differently, they would prevent the president from exercising the 14th Amendment. My answer to that is, okay, if you want to make the current Supreme Court the bad guys and have unanimity about the need to chop their power or to expand the court, sending the world into a worldwide recession would be just the ticket. So number one, I don't believe it for that very reason. And number two, okay, let them be the bad guys. Um, They're the bad guys in every other way. I I got a question for the legal experts. Um, (laughs) the, The question that keeps coming up when I talk to Republicans and Democrats, and these are some of the seven dwarves that are running for the Republican uh, Party's nomination and a lot of the members of Congress who believe that if uh, Joe Biden invoked the 14th Amendment, that it would take so long to adjudicate that we would go ahead and that it would have to be adjudicated in court. And during the process, it was um, that we would default. Is there any truth to that. Jen, you're shaking your head. I, I'd love to hear it because I've I've heard both sides. And well, uh, mostly- let me say something. Plan B, which is also not a joke, is minting the coin. I mean, there no, you, you just have to, you know, if I were at the White House right now, I would say we can't default. And I need, you know, if someone's going to put a stay, you know, we should just pay the fucking bills. And if the court's going to put a stay, then we need to do the coin and let them do this. St- let them keep be and let's make this showdown as public as we can. And, and you know, because it will ruin the Biden presidency. It might ruin our chance of uh, the Democrats of getting reelected, but it's too fucking important. You cannot cave to the Republicans demands. We cannot full further impoverish the poor and crush the middle class. We cannot continue to do that. And we need to have some, you know, brass cojones here. I am sorry. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I, you know, it's, it's a matter. It's, it's not, as what Dahlia said, you've got a plan. Right. You've got to anticipate 
all these actions and then you gotta and you know what you gotta use your fucking power that's why we elected you yeah, great TV. you could roll out this coin that would be like higher than you know the white house on tv it would be great tv um and you know make a national show of it and you know this is just kind of crazy stuff they're afraid that the federal courts are going to step in to take upon themselves the burden of a, the most politicized, the most consequential decision. I don't think they understand what motivates this Supreme Court. This Supreme Court is there to further the right wing agenda and push it just far enough that it's short of a societal explosion that would sweep them away. Um, and you see how their little minds operate when everyone gets very upset about ethics. Oh, they come out with a little letter that everyone signs and says, yes, we'll be, you know, ethical. Um, they are going to go as far as they can and then just squeeze back on the side of the line. They're not going to send the world into an economic depression for what? For the sake of what? Protecting, you know, Kevin McCarthy? That's something they care about. And if they do that, then the president can declare, if they refuse to let it loot, like if they do put it, let's say he does the 14th, pulls a 14th amendment and said, we're going to keep, you know, yell and keep paying the bills. Just fuck it. This is our, our opinion. And then the Supreme Court goes in for whatever reason, does some kind of injunction, you know, Biden can declare a state of emergency in anticipation of a default and he can fucking shut, cut their budget. I mean, whatever. I mean, I am telling you, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not an advisor to people because I will cut you if you fuck with the, you know, Biden right now. Like, well, I, I, don't- I, I would say two things. I think, I think one thing is it's really important and we forget. And I think it goes to Jen Rubin's sort of little minds panicking point that we have three, maybe four of the six justice conservative supermajority who are all in on the chamber of commerce, who are all in on big business, right? These are the union strippers. These are the people who just want to make sure that the Powell memo, like, you know, that's, said that we're going to, you know, capture the court. So big business always wins. They're the like warriors. You're, you're muted, Jen. But just for the listeners, listeners, the Powell memo was when he was head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is different than the local chambers of commerce. And before he became a, a judge, justice. Yeah, no, Justice Powell wrote before he was seated on a, the court, essentially the playbook for what has happened, which is how do we capture the court for big business? And I just don't think that because, you know, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas would joyfully stand in a heap of rubble and let the country burn uh, means that there are five or six who would do that. The other thing that I think is really worth saying, and I think it's under what several of you have have said here today, is that the problem with this White House and the problem writ large with Democrats is that we're in love with processes, that at the end of the day, like we will fight to the death to preserve the blue slip and the filibuster and Senate norms, and we will fight to the death to preserve, you know, the credibility and integrity of the court. That's why you get Democrats signing a letter, right? Liberal justices signing a letter that says we don't need ethics reforms. And I think we have utterly, completely lost the plot on this question of are all these processes ends in themselves or they, are they a means to an end? And we well, think they're, being they're used by the Republicans to to tie up the Democrats. The Republicans that, are they're being the weaponized as, you know, um, um, an end in itself. And we sit there and say, well, but we can't give away all of these values and powers and, you know, tactics that are essentially just process norms. And I, th- I, I worry that when we're standing on a pile of rubble, we're going to be able to say, but at least we preserve the blue slip. And that scares the shit out of me. That is probably the story of the filibuster. That, and, you know, what people like to think is, oh, it was just cinema and mansion. There are a whole batch of Democrats who would resist to their dying day reform of uh, the filibuster or elimination of it. And I love the way Dahlia puts it. What is this all for? You know, if we're talking about that somehow the filibuster, which is a minority device in a minority body, is so important what is the value here that we're preserving? We're not preserving 
any semblance of democracy, any semblance of the people are the residual source of power, we're preserving a exception that the framers were forced to make in the democratic scheme in order to get little states to sign off on the constitution. So this is the value that they think is so great. You know, it's amazing though how quickly, one thing I will tell you is once something's gone, then there's a new tradition. It's right. kind of like we didn't have direct election of senators. Now we do. No one's going back to that. So sometimes you just have to, like, it's not just an Overton window. It's actually just move the ball down the field. They've pushed us back to our own end zone enough already. Um, I am going to uh, pivot to something I meant to ask Dahlia about earlier, which is a bit earlier we were having a conversation about the upcoming 2024 primary season and election. And one of the things, and this is not an invitation to comment yet, Brian, because I'm asking Dahlia, one of the things we've often decried is the way the press has handled this. And it's my understanding that you, you folks over at Slate are going to try something new, Dahlia. Can you tell me, tell us about that? Yeah, two quick points. One is um, we love Mary. We're um, sending love. Two is Jen Rubin is about to launch a, a podcast of her own. And every single person who is, I hope I'm not breaking your um, confidentiality agreement. Um, but every single person who is listening here today should absolutely and emphatically um, sign up for uh, Jen Rubin's podcast. Um, in very, very brief, we at Slate have just uh, launched a pretty ambitious project to rethink the way we cover the courts. And oh, essentially- shoot, the courts. I'm sorry, I said the no, election. No, that's okay. okay. Uh, well, it's going to matter in terms of the 2024 election. But we have essentially just launched a huge, huge three-day package and and people like Norm Ornstein, our friend, uh, has a piece in it. Lots of really smart people thinking about the ways in which we, as the people who cover the court, have been complicit in carrying water for the court for a very long time. And maybe the last thing I'll say about it is one of the things that we noticed when we started putting this package together is every single reporter that has broken a Harlan Crow, Clarence Thomas, Ginny Tom Thomas, Mark Meadows story uh, is not a Supreme Court uh, correspondent, with the exception of Josh Gerstein, who broke the Dobbs leak. Every single person is an investigative reporter from a magazine or newspaper that now literally is hiring for people to cover the court as a political branch. So we feel like we have to very much pivot as a country uh, in thinking about covering the court as limited to covering decisions for the last two weeks in June, because I think we have done irreparable damage. In some sense, we have created this sense of immunity that the justices now enjoy because nobody has poked through their documents and nobody has looked at their ethics. Can I, since you mentioned June, I know that was a kind of not the point that you're going to be covering the court um, as a political branch and not just in June, but June's coming up, Dahlia. Um, and is Joe Biden going to pay my the amount I owe on my parent plus loan or is the court going to put the kibosh on that? I, I mean, I will answer very glibly that, you know, two years ago, the major questions doctrine was like a joke. It was not on the wall to use Jack. <laughs> Falcon's phraseology. Now it was used last term, right, to to make it harder for the EPA to regulate um, carbon emissions. And okay. this year it is being evoked. And it looked, at least from oral argument, that it is being evoked with approval from the court uh, to be, be the reason to set aside the student loan forgiveness plan. So I think in, a, in, a, in, in the most pure sense, a notion that was crack pottery five years ago is now, you know, doctrine of the court is kind of the larger problem we have to think about. Because with all due respect to our side, we don't have an analog to the major question. We don't have a doctrine that we invented last week that we push out into the academy and say, this is going to change the way we do everything. We just say, as you said, Jen, no, we can't. No, we can't. Too cute. No, we can't. And on the other side, we have the independent state legislature theory, also not a doctrine, which is going to be used in an attempt to make sure that state Supreme Courts can't now, decide. That would be a great column the coming up with the legal theories that would be the counterpart to the crackpot ones that would be fabulous that would be like chevron on steroids that would be you know substantive due process you know to the nth degree now that would be a fun exercise i'm on it 
I, I have a fun exercise for you. I just got an email from Donald Trump saying he is his, that he is the answer and he is the retribution. Please just donate forty-seven dollars to him right now. Forty-seven? <laughs> is that like? I don't know what the deal. He sends out these requests for those who have been wronged and betrayed. I am your retribution. Contribute twenty-four. Contribute forty-seven. Contribute seventy-five. One hundred. Two fifty. Contribute another amount. Just let you know that George Soros is out to get you. You and know, Brian, you think head. you're you think you're special because you're on that list. But wait till he sends you a text with his Venmo. Then, you know, you've really made it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he'd send that out to everybody in the country. <laughs> He's a grifter bar none. <laughs> I think that's a way to do we want to end on that? I think that's it. He's a grifter bar none. <laughs> But Dolly, I'm going to use your quote, by the way. I have to use it in my column about him being an adjudicated liar. Thank you. You're welcome. We want to thank Jennifer Rubin and Brian Karam and Jen Taub and all of you for listening in. And uh, we'll see you next week. (laughs) 